This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Box Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com. People didn't understand exactly what they needed to do to spend money on our platform. Okay. You know, and we broke that down and took that away and started thinking in abundance and unlimited opportunity. And we're able to start seeing money flow through in a very like consistent way for the first time. Welcome to the B2B Growth Hacks podcast, the show that helps entrepreneurs like you unlock opportunities for growth in business. I'm your host, Sarah Smith, and this is B2B Growth Hacks, a podcast powered by Speakerbox Media. Underrepresented and honestly, sometimes overlooked. Today, I'm super excited to be talking to Madison Long. Madison, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. Madison is the CEO and co-founder of Clutch, one of Houston's hottest startups. So we'll get into everything that Clutch is working on and her amazing story. But first off, I wanted to start off with something that we might not know about you, Madison. Tell us something that the audience might not know about you or even people who know you. Yeah. Well, outside of being like really into the tech scene, I definitely had a brilliant idea of starting a travel company business in like November of 2019. So perfect timing right before a pandemic (laughs) where I was helping people kind of travel outside the U.S. for the first time as I love putting together group trips and really affordable, low cost ways for people of color, especially to be able to travel for the first time in a really meaningful way. That's awesome. So you've got ideas galore is what I'm hearing. That would have been dope. (laughs) Okay, so we're still on the lookout for this in the future. Yeah, we'll see. It definitely had to get shut down, but I think I just do it more for fun now. Like, a group of friends, let's all go to Columbia. Let's do that and make it really fun. Get a little PowerPoint together. Yeah. yeah. I'm glad I focus more on the tech side, given (laughs) the pandemic. Love it. I love to travel. And I think it's so cool to get outside of the U.S., get outside of the city you're in, country. That's where the, like, honestly, I get the most creative ideas. Exactly. And just, I think people deserve rest and relaxation. And the planning process can be super stressful. So it was nice to be able to help a few folks. Well, that's awesome. I'll get up on that. <laughs> so you are in the tech space. So mm-hmm. for the audience members who don't know who Clutch is, tell us a little bit about Clutch. What is Clutch? And a little bit about your founding story with the Clutch. Totally. So Clutch is a digital marketplace where we are connecting small and medium businesses looking to grow their digital marketing presence to young, creative, nimble, and super talented digital marketers in a freelance capacity. Those digital marketers happen to actually be college students right now. So those 18 to 22-year-olds who have a knack for TikTok, social media management, graphic design, we're connecting them to business owners who on average, about 50% are doing marketing 100% themselves, which is crazy and super time consuming when you think of the learning curve, even just joining TikTok requires. But we're seeing an opportunity where people who engage with a brand on TikTok, 56% of them say that they feel closer to that brand Mm -hmm. and are going to spend more money with them. So it's imperative that you're growing your presence and engaging with your community on the places that they exist online But it's not efficient for you to do all in-house. And so we make it really easy for a small business owner to connect to a student that can kind of take this off your plate and really get it to that next level. 
Yeah, absolutely. It's so much needed. I mean, there's not a small business or medium-sized business that I know that isn't currently recruiting for that position or in need of someone to help them in that front. So super cool. Tell me a little bit about your story up to founding Clutch and kind of what led you there. Yeah. So my co-founder and I actually were best friends in college. So we went to Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, and she was studying computer science. I was studying accounting. And even while I was studying accounting, I knew for sure, like first semester, I do not want to be an accountant, but I need some of the analytical and like fundamental business skills to be able to push myself to kind of fill up my toolkit to be a well-rounded entrepreneur eventually. I did not think it'd happen so soon after graduation. What happened was about two years after graduating, I was working in Microsoft at finance and my best friend Simone was working at Accenture as a technical consultant and leading like app developments and all those things for Accenture clients. And She called me initially with an idea that tangentially is kind of like what Clutch is now, but not really at all. (laughs) And that was stadium concession delivery for college campus stadium events. So if you are at a college football game, someone can deliver popcorn to your seat through this mobile app. Nice. And yeah, and so this was early 2019 and we were just doing a lot of like free research, getting like interns to do it as part of their course credit, just so we could figure out if this was something viable from a developmental perspective and also understand the market. But we were working full-time at that time. We were just excited to be kind of taking on this project. We end up getting MVP together by March of 2020 and going into beta. Of course, every stadium in the entire world shut down in March of 2020. Mm. And so we knew that there was an opportunity to either say it is what it is, that was a good run, or potentially pivot. Luckily, we had resources and some like early family angel investment to be able to actually pivot and put a little bit of money into it to be able to get to what we were doing for the majority of 2020, which was a COVID-19 on-campus solution. Delivery from dining halls to student dorms, very socially distant. You could order in advance, those type of things. Basically, DoorDash for college campus dining halls. We knew we're going to have to come over a lot of red tape in order to make this successful with working with universities and everything else. What we didn't anticipate was after the pandemic and vaccines were coming out and everything and the pandemic wasn't in the height of what it was in 2020, that universities were really going to deprioritize that need. But that's because we'd been talking to students who were like, no, that's what we need. One, they were really interested in having a more accessible feature. But two, they were like, that'd be a great job to have on campus where you can Mm. kind of run around and do kind of this gig work on campus. And so we saw an opportunity to still provide students that kind of gig level work and continue to iterate on the idea. The platform was always two-sided. So instead of what initially was uploading menu items, setting prices and schedule for a dining hall, the student could upload their services, set their own schedule, set their prices. And then the mobile app would output that to the consumer who could then book them for their services. And so that's what we spent last year pivoting to. And now we're Clutch, which allows for these students to list their services and for businesses, small businesses, to be able to book them in a way that's really efficient. And so that evolution has been kind of crazy looking at it now, but I think it's been completely exciting for us and important because at the end of the day, our North Star has been the same. 
We want to create a more accessible, on-demand experience for students that really does empower them. Mm -hmm. We're now making hundreds of students money that they just wouldn't have been making otherwise at rates that you can't get on an on-campus job by any means. But then we're also making a really efficient path forward for small and medium businesses to grow, where marketing agencies are super expensive and hiring someone full-time is very taxing and laborious and you might not even get the right person. So it's a lower stakes way to be able to kind of grow those efforts and still really help this next generation. Yeah, for sure. Oh, I love the kind of the evolution of the business and all of the pivots that were made and how they were really driven by feedback. Yes. You kind of, like you said, you always knew your North Star. You knew yes. that it was helping students, empowering them, equipping them. And by continual conversation with them, you were able to make pivots that make sense. Right. It does seem a little crazy, but looking at it myself as a business owner and entrepreneur, yeah. I can totally see where these pivots connect because you knew your North Star. Absolutely. Which is so important. So, as Clutch has evolved, there's a methodology that you've really kind of dove in to help drive growth and fundamentals at Clutch, and that's design thinking. Walk me through design thinking. What are the steps? How are you applying it in the organization? Absolutely. So yeah, I credit a lot of this kind of evolution and being open to change and iterating as me and my business partner have always put design thinking at the forefront of what we're doing. So design thinking is a concept that was actually developed out of Stanford University in Palo Alto, where they had I believe it was social scientists as well as, you know, entrepreneurs really coming together to understand human behavior and how to design solutions that actually solve real human problems. All of entrepreneurship is about finding a problem and putting a solution to it, right? But how big is that problem? How important is that problem? Is that problem meeting their core animalistic need or is it meeting something more in the peripheral? Even within the problem, the context can be narrowed down in a really efficient way that, yeah, we're still meeting students' needs of empowering them in a way that is scalable and mobile first, but it's so specific now, it looks completely different maybe from an outside in. And so the design thinking methodology, I have couple notes here because it is specific and I don't want to get it wrong, but it is a five-stage approach to analyzing a problem. So the stages go stage one, empathize, stage two, define, then ideate, prototype, and test. And so for stage one, that's really researching users' needs. I think that's obvious, doing some surveying, getting feedback, anecdotal data. But what's interesting about stage one is it doesn't end when you move to stage two. This is something you continue to do. So yes, we did it up front, But we continue to do it as the pandemic happened. We continue to do it now as we have businesses on the platform. Okay, yes, we think these are the needs they're meeting, but let's get even more detail. Why are you paying us this much to do this work? Oh, maybe the need is slightly more nuanced than we would have realized initially. And now we can build an algorithm based on that need, right? And then stage two, define. State your users' needs and problems. Then you define them as you're interpreting them. And that way you can then ideate, challenge your assumptions and create ideas and solutions based on this. So you can create the prototype of the solution, which is stage four. Then, of course, you try out that solution and test it. But what's interesting about design thinking is it's not a linear loop. 
the stage one might feed into stage three, that then stage three then circles back to stage two, then stage four, you're in a loop between ideate and prototype over and over until the prototype is good enough to be able to actually test it. And then from testing, you might have to go back to empathizing. You might have to say, hey, we have a prototype that we've tested. Now we need to do more research based on that prototype and ask questions just based on the prototype we have out. And so it's this very cyclical way of receiving and implementing feedback that allows you to be nimble and never get too emotionally attached to one solution. Sometimes people start startups and they have a really great solution that they know they can get patent pended. They're like, well, it's super novel, it's super great, but there's no customer there because they haven't really understood the problem. Or maybe the customer is there, but they haven't found the right one because they don't know exactly who their solution's actually for. And We have a lot of creative thinkers on our team. I think this is a very creative process that also enables design thinking, but it really has to be people who are in it for the bigger vision and not just for a specific, you know, line of code that they really like or a feature they really love. Yeah, for sure. And something that you're talking about where I think it really determines whether or not you can have longevity and success with the product right. is the constant user feedback. Yeah, I see so many people over leverage their business, both financially, mm-hmm. just culturally, staff wise, going down a hole of like a rabbit hole of something that maybe would have been a part of the original prototype or right, novel idea right. without getting the valid feedback to justify that line item in your budget, that line item of resources. And I think this design thinking methodology really helps you from doing that. It does require, I think, something that you're talking about is a cultural understanding of Mm -hmm. flexibility. Yes. Being agile, sprinting to certain places, like some of these other concepts that we know in business in order for it to work and be successful. Absolutely. So now we're going into culture. One of the things that in a previous conversation we kind of talked through was adapting the culture in order to kind of fight against volatility. And that feeds into this design process, both in product, but also in the organization. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you combat that as a leader at the company, some of the surprises maybe that have come along and kind of the role that emotional intelligence kind of plays in making the business, the product, the consumer all successful. Right. Yeah, I think it 100% starts with the team. We have an amazing full-time team of about six. We are currently like bringing on some more contractors as full-time employees. That'll be growing. But I think just to read our like team mission and value statement, even internally and what our values are. We say that at Clutch, we believe the future of work requires balance, safety, and transparency. And these core tenants enable the next generation to advocate for and empower not only themselves, but others. And a huge part of even balance, safety, and transparency is flexibility. Like that's woven in through every part of that because you have to be nimble to be able to continue building a product that keeps the end user in mind in a lot of ways. And I think for me, just me and my co-founder have realized the importance of emotional intelligence when it comes to design. You have to lead with empathy to be able to design for a customer, but also with how difficult it is to find the right people to join your team or how difficult it is to even be best friends turned co-founders and realize we need to figure out how we can show up for each other as friends. It's like best of friends that's going to transcend this business forever. Our friendship is bigger than this business and we fully believe that. But 
there also is how can we show up for each other from a high EQ perspective in the business. So we're supporting each other and maintain that synergy that then transcends the rest of the team. And I think what I've definitely learned from that is it starts with yourself and you have to be taking care of yourself in a really meaningful way. The boundaries we have as individual team members are very, very important and honored. So if you're out of office, if you have an event, if you're with your family, no one can talk to you. Do not hit them up. Like you don't need to explain where you're going. We have unlimited PTO. Go take that time. Have your office planned together so that everyone knows what their roles are. But the team is managing themselves while you're gone for as long as you need to be. There was a lot of death on our team at the beginning. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were experiencing death of close family members. Take as much time as you need. There's no reason you taking two, three, I don't even know, four weeks off is going to be the reason Clutch fails. That's insane. You never being able to really grieve the loss of a family member is going to be the reason Clutch fails. Because now, 18 months, 24 months, you have resentment, you have fatigue, you're burnt out because you've never been able to be present with that grief and loss. My co-founder and I believe strongly in therapy. We both individually get therapy on our own and talk about the things that we bring to therapy that have to do with the business so we can share those insights and be able to grow and, and bring that to the rest of the team. I mean, we're not perfect by any means, but I think the fact that we are so concerned about how we're showing up and caring for our customers and our team is also the reason we've been able to be so iterative and design a really great product, but also the reason that we've been able to retain incredible people who are like, yeah, I'm in this for the long haul. And we haven't had anyone ever quit, for example. And that's a really huge testament to them feeling cared for, seen, and appreciated while working here. Yeah, for sure. And shout out to therapy. We need to take a Literally. moment to say shout Let's out to therapy. My therapy appointment is tomorrow. Thank yep. you. It's so important I think sometimes we get so hung up in business savvy. Yeah. Are you good at this? Are you intellectually here? Are you reading this book? Are you whatever? And we negate right. the very like primal instincts that we have. Yeah. We need to move. We yeah. need to laugh. We yes. need to emotionally be able to express ourselves. And sometimes that's in therapy. Sometimes that's with friends. But there's so many innate needs that we have that really allow us to show up in a higher capacity if we nurture them. Absolutely. And in turn, create a culture that nurtures them. Example, one of the things that Speakerbox we were talking about is we are a multicultural company. Right. And so when we're deriving the holiday schedule, I emailed out every single core team member and said, like, what holidays are important in your culture? I and what that. we wanted to do was select, obviously we can't do all of them, but I didn't want to look at a solely American Christian, holiday, right. Christian holiday calendar. Exactly. I am Mexican. I am a Christ follower, but I understand that not everybody is. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to create an environment where everybody felt seen. Yes. And so it's things like that, small things that I think you can do. Things like you're talking about, I mean, unlimited BTO, that's really a new kind of within mm -hmm. the last two years that you've seen a lot of companies adapt. And I love that it challenges leaders and the top tier kind of management to really create a system that's not reliant on somebody being at their desk all exactly. the time. Like you said, if the company is going to break because someone needs to be out for a funeral, how viable was it right. in the first place? Literally agree. So I think it makes us turn inward and really look at ourselves as leaders, as producers, as ideologists, and make something bulletproof. Exactly. 
So one of the things that we were talking about when it came to growth, and you mentioned it early on, was you had some initial capital that allowed you to pivot and kind of move through these transitions that you had to to keep Clutch Alive. But that wasn't the only thing. There's another kind of core element that's really helped get Clutch off the ground. And I think it's storytelling. Walk me through a little bit about the role that storytelling has played in Clutch's success and how you're using it to further the business. Absolutely. I think as the CEO, my day-to-day responsibility is to lead the vision clearly articulate it, and get other people on board. So that is applied to customers, that's applied to investors, that's applied to employees and people you want to become employees, as well as just the general public, you know? Um, And so if people go to our website and our story is very vague or, you know, no one understands what's going on, you're already dropping the ball. (laughs) But I think what the added level of just what you're seeing on the website is what is your 10-second pitch, your 30-second pitch, your five-minute pitch? And being able to really practice that, hone in on it. A lot of times for me, yes, I have a big vision of what we're trying to do, but my pitch is not that we're empowering students. That's our North Star. Our pitch is that we're really disrupting the marketing like agency market. And we are making a more efficient way for small, medium businesses to grow and scale their digital presence. That's huge. That's a huge opportunity and a story that has evolved for us. That was not our story a year ago at all. Not our story at all. And articulating that story is a process of repetition. It's a process of feedback. And it's a process of like input. I need our customers to tell us what they're gaining from this because then that helps me articulate it to investors. And I need investors to drill in and say, well, what about this and this? We've seen certain solutions come and go who say they do what you do. And why are you different? You need to be able to defend your story. You need to be able to make it bigger than what it is present day because people need to get along on that vision and on that ride. I definitely have seen success, especially this year in 2022 with pitch competitions and being an effective storyteller, which now I view as a strength. But ironically, it was a huge, scary, big, hairy, like problem for me. Cannot believe it. You guys, I wouldn't believe it if she didn't admit to it. Okay, you have to break this down for us. Tell us about what this felt like before and kind of where you are with it now, because I think public speaking is a real fear. And guys, when you're doing pitching, it's even past just public speaking. You're on the burner. You're having to defend so much Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. really improv. So how does someone who is so terrified of this now become one of the best pitchers (laughs) in Houston? Oh, my gosh. Well, thank you. That's quite the compliment. So. My older sister, two years older than me, we were both at the same preschool. She would take the leading role of plays and have like 20 minutes straight of like dialogue during a play. And I'd be on stage with my hands over my ears, not saying a word, just sobbing, right? I have always been like, why am I up here in front of all these people? (laughs) Yes, I'm a good conversationalist. I say one-on-one or groups or maybe a dinner party. But in the context of being on stage, that much pressure, absolutely terrifying. People don't believe because I was like class president and presented to like 4,000 people at graduation, but I was also terrified there, you know? So I, <laughs> because I think my family is great at orating, they are going to make sure you are speaking and it's clear and articulate. 
I was able to kind of fake the funk. But even as recently as like November of 2021, I was back at Purdue University presenting in front of a lecture hall of probably like 45, 50 people. Nothing crazy. I was completely drenched in sweat because at the end of the day, my stage fright is something I can't control. It's like being at the top of a tall building if you're afraid of heights. You know logically you're safe, but if you look down, you're going to start experiencing that anxiety. Mm -hmm. And I think anxiety is a very real thing. And I think a lot of ways to kind of conquer those fears is constant like immersion therapy. And what I think this pitching has done is constant immersion therapy. I'm constantly going up in front of people and constantly doing it, constantly saying it. And eventually I realized, oh, the worst that can happen is not the worst that I thought could happen. Right. The worst that could happen is you stumble and have to restart a sentence, maybe. Yeah. Usually, right? And I always tell myself before I present, because I still get nervous, but I can calm myself down much quicker now because I say to myself, no one knows this pitch as well as you do. Right. And not only that, no one knows this company as well as you do. Mm -hmm. So if, if I can sit right here one-on-one -on -one and talk about this company with a lot of confidence, I can do that in front of people because it's my company. So I think part of it is, one, I'm not going up there and doing like show tunes Broadway where, you know, whatever. Like, it's something that we made this company up. It's now a company. I made up the story. Here's the story, right? Yeah. No one can take that away from me. So it is my own thing to tell and share. And I think that shift in power and how I'm thinking about it takes off the pressure of it needing to be perfect. Mm -hmm. Because I think perfection is where additional anxiety unnecessarily arises. Mm -hmm. So giving myself some of that grace was very helpful. Then practice makes perfect. I will practice that pitch in front of anyone, a grandma, a child, whatever, because I know that practice for me allows me to really get rid of any sort of fear, get a lot of feedback and not have any sort of hesitation in curveballs an investor might throw when they're in the Q&A session. Yeah. And I think the concept of improv is very helpful. I actually told myself that this year as a goal, I'm going to go to a comedy show and like do a five-minute stand-up set. I don't have any material written. We'll see. <laughs> but I think there's something <laughs> to, right, to just like, that's terrifying yeah. to say. Like that's conceptually terrifying because you need to be funny, right? Right. But if I can go up on a comedy set for five minutes and completely bomb, that's the worst that could happen, right? Like, yeah. that's the worst that could happen. And if I can really get over that, I think I'll finally defeat that last kind of bit of hesitation I have with public speaking for once and for all. So. Yeah, it's super incredible to hear kind of an opposite take from my own. I never have been necessarily scared of public speaking. Mm -hmm. I am a perfectionist, though. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's so encouraging. And I think it's encouraging for other people to hear a story like yours, where this wasn't your forte. This right. really was something that you've had to develop. And with simply committing to it, getting out there, being your own hype girl yeah. and practicing, exactly. you've really, really turned something around and it's been wildly successful for your company. I mean, yeah. you guys have raised an amazing capital to continue growing Clutch and you've had, I think, an impact just garnering support all around. Like you right. said, not just from investors, but from customers, from businesses. Yes. You have to be a champion of all of those people essentially as a business owner and I think you guys have done an awesome job Thank at that. Thank you. No, that means a lot. Thank you. We've talked kind of all around about different difficulties and things like that. But one of the things that I know has been difficult 
And that I think sometimes we overlook as people of color is the challenges we sometimes pose against one another Mm -hmm. and how we can kind of hold each other back. And in a previous conversation, we were talking about this. You're African-American woman. I'm a Mexican-American woman. And we both found this similarity in this idea that there is a scarcity mindset among people of color, and it really impacts the success of our collective groups of people from progressing. Talk to me on that, on your experience with that, your personal experience as a black female in tech who's young. And I mean, just those terms altogether looking at them tell me that you had so much stacked against you coming into this. So I'd love for you to expand on your experience there. Yeah, so I think me and my co-founder are both black women. We started this when we were like 24, we're now 26, we're gonna be 27 this year. Like we have always kind of been the youngest in the room. She's often as the technical co-founder, the only woman in the room when she's around other technical people. Definitely we've been the only black people in the room many, many times. But sometimes I think intercommunally, in the tech scene, outside of the tech scene, we can feel like if we're the only ones in the room, that's because there is only one ticket available for someone who looks like you. Mm. And that's not the truth, Mm -hmm. right? And we've seen more of this. There's more Black women that are getting funded every year. That number is no longer under 100. It's probably doubled or tripled just in 2021 because of access and people breaking down those barriers and walls at the top levels and all the way down to the entry-level kind of startup founder level. But what I've definitely struggled with is sensing a level of competition Mm -hmm. amongst people who look like me versus us all linking arm in arm and saying, okay, how can we all get to that next level? It can come from potential people who want to hire. It can come from investors. It can come from other startup founders. And that has been the most disappointing Peace, because I think as you're breaking into this scene, the only thing you want to do initially is like make sure people around you are also along for the ride and can be part of that growth. And seeing that not always be the case due to this kind of scarcity mindset is sad. It's inherently sad because me and my co-founder truly believe in abundance. We do not think about, yes, we're underrepresented. Yes, we're underestimated, all these things. But we don't even use that language very often because we're like... Okay, we look at it like, wow, we've completely blown our own expectations and I'm sure other people were exceeding them far more than even our own. But at the end of the day, we know that there's enough capital out there to be raised. We know that there's enough people who are hustlers to be able to build another marketplace, even though there's other competition in the market. We know that there's businesses have a ton of solutions and yet we still can provide solutions that make sense for them. I think a great example is look how many water companies there are. We're drinking rainwater. I've never heard of this. <laughs> yeah. But rain, whoever created rainwater, literally had the audacity to think with 150 different water bottle companies, we should create another one in aluminum cans because there's an opportunity there. And I don't know how well they're doing, but do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think sure. that that's just a prime example that like the more dominant cultures, men, they do not think about scarcity the way women do all the time. White people do not think about scarcity the way people of color do all the time. If we could really free ourselves of that, it's not the only solution, don't get me wrong, but if we could really free ourselves from that, the world really opens up in how we conceptualize opportunities, entrepreneurship, building community, whatever that might look like, nonprofits even. There's just a breadth of opportunity to keep continuing to solve humans' problems and needs and meet them where they're at. 
Yeah. And the truth is people match your energy. Yeah. I mean, I say it all the time. It's like, it's funny. One of my friends, we were having this conversation and she's like, I don't even use that vocabulary no. when I'm thinking about it. And it's Mm-mm. like, absolutely not. You can't. Exactly. Because if you go in there thinking that, then that's what you that's are. That's what you become. Yeah. That's the bar. And by changing out that vocabulary, by like you said, knowing that there is space for you, that you yeah. were created to do something that only you guys can do or only you can unlock or you have unlimited amounts of innovation and ability to iterate and change that kind of destroys that ceiling that sometimes we uh, find when we're um, thinking about the way we look, thinking about the way we sound, thinking about what's available to us. Even what's written constantly. You could get on Twitter any day of the week and people will tell you how hard it is for this marginalized group, this experience, blah, 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 blah. And you can really internalize that. And I think for a while I did. At the beginning I did. And I'll even like be super transparent. Last year, August to December, we had a super hard time growing Clutch, getting revenue, getting customers on board. I was so focused, and this isn't even from an identity perspective, but I was so focused just telling my team, all we have to do is make our first dollar. We just need to make our first dollar. That is such a limited type of mentality. We need to make one dollar, Right. When I started thinking of it in an abundance mindset of let's create, let's figure out exactly what value we're creating and the money will come. I'm not worried about how much money we're going to make. Let's just figure out what the value we're creating and really understand that. The second I did that, I actually took a week off because I was so feeling burnt out. I actually took a week off. And in that first, in that week off, we made like $400. We made our first dollar and then we made 399 more. right? (laughs) Right. And then from then... The next month we made 4,000 and the next month we made, you know what I mean? And now we're just wildly different than we were back then. And that was really only like five months ago. But I knew for me, I was holding my own team back by telling them, go chase this $1. Hopefully we can just make it to the $1, right? Versus, no, no, no. Maybe we need to take a step, find out the value we're creating and Focus in and hone in on that. Maybe we're too distracted. We had so many balls in the air and that's why we weren't making money. People didn't understand exactly what they needed to do to spend money on our platform. Okay. We broke that down and took that away and started thinking in abundance and unlimited opportunity and we're able to start seeing money flow through in a very consistent way for the first time. Yeah. Powerful. It brings me back to 2020 for speaker box too. I yeah. think everybody had these pivotal moments during the pandemic because honestly, you're trying to survive. Yeah. I mean, I've just had this moment of gratitude at the beginning right. of this year, looking around saying, man, there's businesses that weren't able to come out of 2020 and exactly. we're still here. So we're coming out with guns blazing, yeah. right? One of the scarcity mindsets that I had that I didn't realize at the time, we had a little bit of R&D money left and we're like, we've got to put it somewhere. And again, just like you, we're struggling to get new sales. We're struggling to get people to understand the value of what we do. And so we got with a sales coach and he did some sales ride alongs with me. Shout out to Fireside Strategic. And he brought forth some of the limiting language I was using, even limiting like stance. And he's like, if it makes you feel better, stand when you're doing this. And I'm like, Why didn't I ever think of this? Because that position just, it didn't feel as powerful for me to speak from. And so I needed to invoke that when I'm 
talking about this for the first time or trying to whatever. And like you, it was like, gosh, I just have to get this out. I have to come out of here getting this out. And even my co-founder and partner in life, husband says, hey, you walk in there, you get it or you don't. It doesn't matter. You don't have to make this sale. I don't know what about that unlocks something. But after that first one, then the rest kept rolling. But it's the language. It's the idea that there's not enough or that you're going to go under if you don't do something. And that's just not true. We fool ourselves sometimes. And it's funny, but something you said earlier really touches home, which is that females look for validation and use language with ourselves that males simply don't. They don't. They They literally never. So (laughs) I'm sure you and Simone have had interesting conversations about this because she goes into the space as the technical one. And I'm sure it's just has to consistently be comfortable and confident in who she is and the skills she has. And I think for her, she's seen it. There's positive and negative with both of those kind of approaches. I think women coming from a maybe calculated risk perspective, which I think both she and I take more calculated risks than maybe the other founders, but that's also allowed us to have longevity and have enough runway to be able to iterate, yep. right? If we were just like all in on that dining hall DoorDash solution, we might be out of money. We would have never been able to have the opportunity to pivot, yep. right? But when we were even talking about moving on into Clutch, how we were initially pitching Clutch, the scope of it was here. Now we see this as like the number one Gen Z freelance marketplace that's going to truly shape the future of work, where freelance at this point has a lot of negative connotations that we think are going to go away, but also we're going to fully equip freelancers in the future to get benefits and perks and educational resources traditionally tied to full-time employment that now they can have as a freelancer on clutch. Maybe that's health insurance. Maybe that's 401k things. Like where they can really still be functioning full-time type worker that traditionally isn't afforded to freelancers. And so like that is bigger than just connecting students to SMBs, right? That's a bigger thing. And it's like, we were even a little bit hesitant to think too big because we were like, we don't want people to think we're just making stuff up, right? Mm -hmm. Men aren't afraid of people thinking they're making stuff up. No. Elon Musk isn't afraid of anything. Like, you know what I mean? He does, there's no time that Elon Musk wakes up and goes, do people think I'm overconfident or think I'm thinking too big? No. 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 So why are we, right? Yeah. And I don't think Elon Musk is my, I'm not looking at him for advice or guidance on anything, but it's just like constantly you see this happening with men. Sometimes they fail, sometimes they, they succeed, but at the end of the day, they believed in themselves. They believed in themselves. With no hesitation. Yeah. I know what I'm doing is a real thing that's happening and people really find value in. So why would I ever not believe in myself? Sure. And we're asking customers to believe in us. We're asking students to believe in us. We're asking investors to believe in us. No, you have to believe in you bigger than you might even be comfortable initially doing. But you get more comfortable with it, just like the pitching. I'm now way more comfortable having really big audacious goals. Yeah, and that's where I was going to go is the first time I saw that was in Scaling Up mm-hmm. and in Traction where he talks about having a big, hairy, audacious goal. And at first, honestly, I thought it was fluffy. I thought it was very fluffy to do that. But then right, I realized right. it's exactly what you said. It's putting yourself in this mentality of abundance. Like, if yes. not you, why not you? Why yep. couldn't it be you? Why can't you have the biggest Gen Z marketplace for freelancers in the world? And for whatever reason, we sometimes shy away from those things. Yeah. And if we could simply just learn to 
Or if we could just be courageous enough, if we could encourage women as other women, set those goals as high as you can and inevitably you level up. If there's enough motivation behind it, if the goal is bigger than you, you're that passionate about it, you level up. And it may not even look like that. It may pivot into a different, but you're headed in the right direction. Yeah, because even if we're the second biggest... We're still, you know, a unicorn in a lot of ways. So, you know, like, it's like, come on, why not just go for the moon, you know? Go for the moon. I love it. Well, Madison, we could go forever and ever on this conversation because it's been amazing. I know, it's been great. And thank you so much for your time and for sharing your knowledge with the B2B Growth Hacks audience. Is there a resource that you want to point them to that's been super helpful for you on your journey? Yeah, I think in a lot of ways, especially... I think getting through this kind of abundance mindset, I'd say one, look into design thinking, that whole protocol, but even thinking about how to prioritize and how to really move into this abundance mindset. There's been a lot of books that are out there about startups, right? But there needs to be even just entry-level self-awareness, part of emotional intelligence, of understanding where you need to grow Mm -hmm. to be able to show up better in the business. And at the beginning of this company, I think me and my co-founder were realizing we are limiting ourselves in our thinking, like we've been talking about. And there was a book that actually helped us work through that, which is actually called The Subtle Art of Not Giving a F. And it was interesting because it really helps you prioritize what's important to care about more than it is how to just not care about anything, right? It's how can you really prioritize what's important, tune out the rest, and then pour yourself into those important priorities on a day-to-day basis and be able to actually have enough room in your brain to think about the limitless opportunities. Yeah. And that is what that book began. There's different things that I then practiced and understood after that to get more into that abundance mindset. But that was a really big switch for me because I think as women, we're always taught to think about every single person from the mailman to the CEO, like everyone is someone we should be empathizing with and understand and be able to anticipate their needs. But are you doing that for yourself? Are you putting yourself first? Are you prioritizing the things that are going to help you get to the next level? Not always, because you're too busy worried about everyone else and everything else. Right. But that's a lot of noise and chatter that once you can kind of reposition, allows you to still show up for everyone in the ways that are important to you without putting yourself last. Yeah, it's funny. I recommend that book a lot. The title can be off-putting because it it makes people think that it's advising you not to care about anything. But like you said, that's not. So I second that recommendation. If you haven't read that book, you definitely should pick it up. It's a quick read too. It is, yeah. Yeah. Really easy read. And I think, like you said, makes you go down tons of tunnels with yourself, Mm -hmm. which is that introspection is super important. Absolutely. Where can people connect with you if they want to find out what you're working on or hit you up and chat? Yeah, feel free to add me on LinkedIn. I'm Madison Long there. I'm Madison Long on Twitter and Instagram, but Long is spelled L0NG. And then, of course, if you're interested in getting a side hustle and you're a college student or you're a small business looking for affordable marketing talent, go to thatsclutch.com. Awesome. Thanks so much, Madison. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. If you'd like to know how to get involved and share your story, head over to our website at b2bgrowthhacks.com. Also, while you're there, subscribe to our newsletter so you don't miss the latest conversations happening here on B2B Growth Hacks.
This podcast is sponsored by Speaker Rocks Media, where we hand-build podcasts just like this one to create online communities for brands like yours. If you'd like to learn more, head over to speakerboxmedia.com.